Profiles and Strategy, a podcast series of talks by the U.S. Naval War College Strategy and Policy Department. I'm your host, Lieutenant Colonel John O'Gorman, United States Marine Corps. The views expressed herein do not necessarily represent the views of the Naval War College or the United States. Hello and welcome everyone to the Profiles and Strategy podcast. This is uh, episode 18, the, uh, the Chinese Civil War or the rise of, uh, of China. Uh, I'm Lieutenant Colonel John O'Gorman, United States Marine Corps, your host. Joining me today, my colleagues from the Naval War College. First, we have Dr. Nick Sarantakis. Nick, welcome. Welcome. Next, Dr. Andrew, a.k.a. Dex Wilson. Dex, welcome. Thanks and for having me. Last but certainly not least, joining us new this week, Dr. Kristen Mulready-Stone. Welcome. Thank you very much. All right. So um, this, this case covers a um, expansive period of time, as all of our cases in the SLC do, um, starting out with, mm-hmm. with China, where China's come from, and moving forward into China turning communist, and mm-hmm. then their forces fighting in Korea. Um, but context matters, right? So I wanted to start this conversation. You can't understand how Mao won the Chinese Civil War unless you understand where China came from. They actually gave an excellent le- lecture on this today. But um, I wanted to start the conversation with talking about the warlord period and how um, the rise of, of these two warlords that eventually do kind of survive, come out the back end of it, Chang, Kai-shek, Mao Zedong, um, Kuomintang and, uh, and uh, Chinese communists, but they're just two of, what is it initially, something like 12? Next, we'll start this conversation with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, uh, well, it's kind of like the, the coalitions against, uh, against Napoleon. Uh, it depends on who you ask. Uh, but there are quite literally uh, dozens of different warlords. Um, there are, you know, eight to 10 major warlords, but then we also see coalitions, uh, of lesser warlords, as I as I mentioned in the lecture, the way one way to think about China in the 1920s and the 1930s is is to say it's basically like 20 Afghanistan's. Um, it's it's there it is, there is a nominal uh, national government, uh, but most of the regions are carved up into um, uh, you know the satrapies where, wherein a local military strongman uh, has their own private army. Uh, or a coalition of local strongmen have their own army, they collect the local taxes, they, for all intents and purposes, rule these as, as independent fiefdoms. Um, so th- those, are, those are the dynamics, and that was a direct outgrowth of the collapse of central political authority uh, in 1911, 1912, the failure of an initial effort to create a new national, um, you know, a constitutional republic. Um, you know, it continues in name, but for all intents and purposes, various regions of China become milita- independent military dictatorships. Um, and uh, this is one of the reasons why uh, China becomes awash in weapons, because it is the largest arms market in the world. Uh, so you have tens of millions of people, you have tens of, you know, sorry, hundreds of millions of people, you have tens of millions of firearms. 
uh, and it's just an inherently chaotic and violent place. And our two political parties this week, you know, as you said, are, are, are essentially the, the most successful of the warlords. Um, but whereas most of the warlords, uh, it is politics that's subordinate to, to military power, uh, both Mao and Chiang Kai-shek appreciate the fact that um, in order to unify China, you need to subordinate violence to political purpose. So Mao famously uh, quotes, I believe it's Lenin, to say that political power grows out of the barrel of the gun, but our principle is that the party must always control the gun. So that's what you see in both Chiang Kai-shek's efforts and Mao Zedong's successes of subordinating violence to political purpose. Okay, and, and, and starting out with this conflict, Mao is a very minor player in the Communist Party. And yes, it's over the, yeah. absolutely. I mean, Mao is a, uh, actually a sort of a junior faculty member at the uh, Nationalist War College uh, down, uh, it's called the Wampo Academy. Uh, and then he's an intellectual, he had been an assistant librarian, um, but, uh, you know, a, mi a minor player in the, in the Chinese Communist Party uh, when he writes the report on the peasant investigation, uh, the report of investigation of the peasant uprising in Hunan province in 1927. This is where he gets his ideas about peasant revolution. Uh, but it's um, really only about 1934, 1935, where Mao cements his position uh, as the, the primary leader of the Chinese Communist Party. But even then, he's not... Uh, the hierarchy is fairly flat. Uh, he's sort of first among equals uh, among the ideological leadership uh, as well as the sort of strategic and military leadership of the party. So mm. uh, it's, it's, it's a gradual rise from there. It's very different from Mao and sort of the late stages of his life when he has, uh, he's trying to exercise absolute authority. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Kristen, let's go to you next on this one. Yeah, so as Dex was saying, you know, that with these, you can count them in the dozens of different warlords, some of them in the warlord period controlled little more than a stretch of railway or road, right? Mm -hmm. And that's part of where the coalitions come from. But one of the really interesting things about it is that a lot of them had foreign policies, right? Because yes, there was a de facto government in Beijing and many countries, including the United States, went through that government to try to deal with their foreign policy that would maybe hopefully apply to the whole of what we know as China. But a lot of the warlords, not just the bigger ones, but a lot of the warlords wound up having to develop foreign policies. And even though it was a profoundly violent time, this was not strictly a in it for me and myself and my team, my, my band of bandits kind of thing. Like a lot of them really were trying to do what was best for a China that they wanted to see reunified. And so it was very, very divided, but there wasn't a whole lot of, I'm gonna break this section off forever. We're gonna set up a new country, right? This was, they've still, the nationalism developed later in China than it did in some other places, but it, it you know, the understanding of the whole of China was there and the the idea of I mean, obviously there were the selfish really violent people in it for themselves and the money but it, it, there was more than just that going on here you, you just you just gave me a, a flashback actually because uh one of the courses that i took in grad school was the history of modern china and and one of the readings we had to do was all about um one of the warlords Wu Peifeku. Wu Peifeku. Reason, yeah that, that, yeah, that, that yeah. name kind of always like stuck with me but it was I can't remember if it was Hunan or Hubei province. He was like the warlord, but it was all about how, like, just in this, you know, in this area, which is very big, actually, what he's doing in this one period of time to try and 
you know, make governance work and, and whatnot. And it, it, it's kind of mind boggling when you extrapolate that to like the rest of China. And then the problem set that here's Chang, who's trying to kind of piece together these, these coalitions, this patchwork, and he's going to have to go and negotiate with all of these different guys to try and get mm -hmm. them on his team versus, versus the communist side. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and then as you know, we move forward, we'll get into the whole third party spoiler of the Japanese, but, um, but yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Dex. Yeah. I would just, I would just say too, I mean, uh, yeah, the, the, the uh, foreign media was, was sort of uh, really sort of played up the salacious, uh, brutal details uh, of the uh, of the warlord era, famously the dog meat general, uh, all these details about his, pro his 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 concubines from a half a dozen different countries. Um, but yeah, exactly as Kristen said. I mean, a lot of these uh, they 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 did see themselves as as reformers. Um, uh, they quite often modeled themselves. I mentioned today that Yan Shishan thought of himself as kind of the Mussolini of China, um, and in hindsight we we tend to view Mussolini in a very negative sense but for many at the time that that sort of um the success of fascism in in Italy uh provided a model for how uh, a state in rather straight straight circumstances could uh do the type of economic and military reforms and the types of of uh, political reforms necessary to help China uh out of its its very precarious state uh, many of them uh, I think Wu Peifu, I think was that the Ludendorff of China? Uh, so again, looking at, you know, again, Ludendorff has a negative reputation in our minds, but at, at the time, uh, another military innovator, you know, who, who saw that, the, the you know, uh, that uh, in the same way as the Clausewitz, that, uh, you know, uh, you, you have to see the security, but the, 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 the military needs also to be part of the process of, of state building. Um, so it's uh, absolutely crucial for um, uh, to, to understand th that this wasn't sort of warlordism for the sake of warlordism. Uh, it was really a multiple different agendas for uh, how to how to how to reform China, and maybe reunite China, and bring China sort of forward out of this morass of political division uh, and uh, and foreign invasion and exploitation. Mm. Yeah, Kristen, go ahead. Yeah, so it's it was a little jarring to me as a graduate student to go into the archives in Shanghai, you know, researching what I was for the 1920s and 30s, and to read these documents of from the nationalist government and elsewhere, aspiring to fascism, mm -hmm. right? Fascism is going to rescue us because you know we know what we know of fascism now. They didn't yet then, but it there was a crisis of democracy in the aftermath of the stock market crash of 1929, and you know all of the countries that were doing poorly were the capitalist countries, and the one country that seemed to be doing really well was the Soviet Union because it was cut off from the rest of you know the world's economy, and so it, but it was also not allowing a lot of information out, but its economy wasn't as affected by the Great Depression as a lot of others. And so there was a turn away from democracy as a hopeful um, saving kind of system and capitalism certainly too. And so, yeah, fascism had worked really well to bring Italy back and it therefore served as a model yeah. uh, for China and a lot of other places too. We, we talked about that actually in the interwar podcast where you know, you don't know why all these countries turned to fascism, Spain, Italy, Germany, until you really understand how bad the Great Depression was and anything seemed better than than that. So uh, but uh, Nick, 
haven't had a chance to get to yet here. I know you're not a China expert per se, but if you want to convert this question into a, a Joe Stilwell and his problems to try to advise Chang, then, you know, go ahead. Uh, no, I mean, I, I, I have studied Chinese uh, history in graduate school, but that was so long ago. George uh, Bush the first was still president. So, um, <laughs> but I, the thing I'd say about the, the warlord period, and this, that's actually the graduate school uh, course I took is modern China, you know, since basically uh, the collapse of uh, the Qing dynasty. Uh, but uh, the thing to note about China is, you know, you see central authority collapse. Um, uh, Kristen and Dex are far better knowledgeable on this, but I was just reading some stuff on France in World War II. And uh, oftentimes you see when political authority collapses, you end up seeing a lot of decentralization in ways that Americans don't really tend to realize because our civil war, you more or less see central authority remain. I mean, Confederacy accepts defeat and, you know, they're quickly folded back in, although in some states like Missouri, that's not the case. But um, uh, this kind of collapse of central authority is quite common when you see uh, political authority uh, collapse uh, and you see civil, a period of civil wars. So and I remember writing a graduate school paper where I compared China of, in the interwar period to Lebanon in the 80s and 90s. So the professor said, well, you know, there's some differences, but that's a good comparison. So, <laughs> well, there's, there's, there's differences of scale too. You know, it just boggles the mind uh, to con consider the, the, again, the scale of the crisis that the Chiang Kai-shek confronts uh, in 1945, uh, the scale of, of, of Mao's success in, in unifying essentially a half a continent um, yeah. and, and, you know, 450 million people. It's this kind of, you know, how is it that, that China, um, you know, the dynasty, this, this sort of uh, the last dynasty, which is this kind of cobbled together multi-ethnic, uh, multicultural, vast, you know, continent-spanning space uh, somehow makes it out of the chaos of imperial collapse, World War One, World War Two, the Great Depression, all those sort of fits and starts, and and remains and returns to large, largely, uh, uh, you know, uh, political and geographic unity, uh, yeah. and endures when when you know essentially every other contemporary empire that it that it shared the stage with in the 19th century is, is long gone. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, uh, when the Roman empire collapses in the, in the fifth century, I mean, people make efforts, you know, uh, the Holy Roman empire, the Byzantine empire makes efforts to put it back together and it's just too difficult. And uh, to be able to do that, I've always been wanting to make some kind of comparison, but uh, probably best I not do that. But, um, but it does seem, you know, it just is very impressive. And, you know, the, as you point out, Austro-Hungarian Empire shattered beyond beyond repair. I mean, in same time period, so it's very amazing, very impressive, at least in a technical sense. Asking the question, I mean, a lot of times in this case, we were very Mao centric, but want to stick with Chang for just a minute, because Chang, as you mentioned next earlier today, is kind of the uh, successor to Sun Yat-sen, who they're, they're trying to put things back together, and they have the most. Um, clout in order to be able to do so, I guess is a way to say it. And at, at a certain point, uh, I, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, Dex, but you know, the, the first couple of encirclement campaigns, Chang has the communists on their heels. They are, they are, um, I won't say for all intents and purposes beaten, but they're, they're not doing well. And Chang's got the upper hand. 
but then we have this third party spoiler thing of the Japanese, um, yeah, you know, coming yeah. in. So, want to kind of talk about that for just a second? Yeah, I mean, if you think of, uh, you know, as I said, uh, Chang's focusing initially on these diseases of the body. He's trying to consolidate domestic political and economic power. And, you know, in addition to the warlords, he has this ideological adversary that, you know, in his mind is also an agent of Soviet influence. Uh, and Chen Kai-shek is not dumb. He knows what, what Stalin's up to. Um, so, yeah, it takes him a while, but eventually, uh, with the aid of German advisors and uh, this sort of encirclement uh, system uh, of pillboxes and the like, he starts to strangle off these Chinese, ba the communist base areas in, in southeast China, um, and drives them on this long march to the far, uh, to up, up into the sort of north north central China to this sort of uh, this poor backwater, um, and then proceeds to encircle them there uh, using a domestic political rival, the former warlord of Manchuria, uh, to try to quarantine or maybe even uh, roll back the communists even further um, as part of this larger agenda of solving these internal uh, challenges. Mm. Uh, but that backfires on him in part at the, the prompting of Stalin, um, but also the desire of, of this former warlord of Manchuria to, to shift the focus of uh, taking Manchuria back uh, and uh, reasserting his, his family interests there, but also he, is a, he, is, he himself is a reformer um, and trying to advance the, the, the cause of a larger uh, Chinese uh, body politic. Uh, so that is a turning point uh, in this conflict because the efforts to quarantine the, the, the communists come apart. Uh, and very soon after that, there is an, a radical escalation in the conflict with, with Japan. Uh, and Japan invades uh, full-scale invasion in 1937. Uh, and despite heroic efforts uh, to resist, the nationalist military is shattered and the government is for forced to withdraw deep into the interior. Uh, and much of uh, East China um, falls under a mix of Japanese occupation, but also the Japan setting up um, puppet governments uh, seeking to assert, uh, to, to uh, control, control China through a group of proxies. This happens up in Manchukuo beginning in 1931, but 1938-39 uh, governments are set up. New Republic of China, new republics of China, a new Republic of China is established in, in Eastern China to kind of compete uh, for political loyalties. But Chiang Kai-shek, despite the beating he's taken and, and the, the, the brutality of the Japanese efforts to shatter the will of the Chinese people, uh, you know, he stays in the fight um, because he has that strategic depth um, has the commitment, and he also has the moral and increasingly material support from the United States and other allies. So. Is, is it fair to say this is the point where Mao and the communists kind of, you know, the tipping point, if you will, that they gain more of a momentum because they're not really fighting the Japanese, right? They're just uh, they, they do they do fight the Japanese. Uh, they but they they uh, not but nothing on the scale of the effort that the national government uh, put into it. Uh, they also are uh, battered badly uh, when they go on a premature offensive, something called, I believe, the 100 Regiments Campaign, uh, and the Japanese respond with this, this intensely brutal loot-all, kill-all, burn-all strategy mm. um, and set the communists back militarily. After that, there is a, uh, uh, a significant hesitancy 
of the communists to go on the offensive. Moreover, um, you know, beginning in 1940, actually 1939, um, Japan shifts from its efforts to expand its control in China uh, to simply trying to hold what it's taken and tries to shift a lot of its uh, heavier units out. So it goes from sort of an, you know, an offensive military force to much more of a occupation, an uneven occupation. Um, and this involves uh, the, the, brief, the, the brief but bloody war that the, the Japanese fight against the Soviets, 38-39, um, and then of course the shift in Japanese strategic focus towards Southeast Asia, uh, mm -hmm. which, uh, mm -hmm. which leads directly to the war with the United States. Mm. Okay, good stuff. Kristen, we'll go so to you. That gives, that gives Mao, that gives the communists a lot more maneuver room in the sort of interstices between um, the Japanese occupation. When you look at the maps, quite often the, 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 the communist base areas sit uh, between uh, rail networks, sort of. Mm -hmm. uh, so pretty much the, the most the Japanese could do was get a few dozen miles away from the rail lines. So anything farther than that, beyond the reach of their occupation, was was pretty much a free zone for uh, communist uh, uh, operations. Mm. Okay, good stuff, Kristen. Yeah. So on that point, you know, when you look at a map of who controlled what areas in China during this period, it's really quite fascinating, right? Because they have the maps where it's just a big swath of Japanese control. And those are very misleading. There are always pockets of communists and sometimes nationalists inside what is ostensibly Japanese controlled territory for the very reason Dex just said, right? I mean, you look at the size of Japan and you look at the size of China, both geographically and in terms of population. And the Japanese had a manpower problem from the very beginning as they were trying to take over these sections of China. And Chiang Kai-shek was able to adjust his strategy fairly early in the war, right? So this, this not war, the war, the part of the war that begins in 1937 starts outside Beijing, kind of by accident. It was yet another skirmish that this time blows into something bigger. And then Chiang Kai-shek shifts it to, um, adds a second front in, in Shanghai, where his strongest forces are. So they attack Japanese forces there fight far better than anybody expected them to in um, in Shanghai. It was brutal, but but it, it was protracted compared to what everybody expected. And so after that, in the withdrawal inland towards Nanjing, where the horrible Nanjing massacre occurs, Chiang Kai-shek has to switch his strategy, right? And what he does ultimately, you know, partly by necessity of withdrawing inland, which then becomes something more of a strategy, is he forces Japan to divide their forces, right? Mm -hmm. Because they've got nothing but space. And so Japan can't fight them everywhere. So, But even more importantly, as it moves inland, the, the Im immense power of the Japanese Navy loses its full extent of uh, damage that it can inflict. And this allows the, the nationalists and China to survive not fully under Japanese occupation. And of course, then when the shift, when the Japanese shift their focus more to Southeast Asia, then it becomes even more challenging. But what's really, you know, something that um, I like to point out to students in my elective and in other courses I've taught is there's this book by Rana Mitter that came out several years ago called Forgotten Ally, because China was one of the allies in World War II. And Stillwell, <laughs> shifting back to Nick, like Stillwell hated Chiang Kai-shek. He was very dismissive of, of him. He called him cash my check. He called him the peanut, right? I mean, he called him all of these disparaging names. But um, in, in this time period, 
the allies sort of think of Chiang Kai-shek as just greedy, just a money grubber, just a nuisance. But in fact, he and, and Professor Sally Payne's book lays these numbers out, one of her books lays these numbers out quite clearly. They kept a whole lot of Japanese forces tied down in China and um, were they were part, one of um, Stillwell's problems with um, and, and the U.S. Army in general, their problems with Chiang Kai-shek is he was fighting more of a World War One style war of attrition as opposed to the kind of um, battles that that the allies were fighting in Europe. And so they were extremely critical of him. And Hans van de Ven touches on this in his um, War and Nationalism in China book. And so I love that um, Rana Mitter called his book Forgotten Ally because they did play a role in this. And Dex is absolutely right. This gave the CCP the you know and the developing Red Army uh, in North China a whole lot of breathing room to build. It's also crucial to remember that Japanese, sorry, Chinese forces, nationalist and communist forces also fought each other in China during this war as they're trying to fight against the Japanese. So it was complicated and messy and, and spread out over a whole lot of territory um, for, for and, you know, eight years. Correct me if I'm wrong, too, but even during this time, there are still other minor warlords, right? Yes, but yeah. more, much more minor. Yeah. Yes. But, but, you know, I'm just saying you don't have these two homogeneous blocks and then the so, yeah. And it was enormously challenging. For, yeah. yeah, that's right. It was enormously <laughs> challenging for Chiang Kai-shek because he couldn't, even though they were working together and he was the top in command, so to speak, they weren't necessarily loyal to him. And right. so he didn't always know and he gave orders or asked them to please come fight in a particular place. That didn't mean they were going to do it. Yeah. Right. They often did. But, you know, it was it, it was, again, very messy for Chiang Kai-shek to be in command of this very um, diverse army in terms of multiple commanders mm -hmm. um, from regional areas that, you know, the foot soldiers first loyalty was to their local guy, not to Chiang Kai-shek. Yeah. 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 I, I guess the best analogy is kind of like being department chair in a room full of academics right now i'm just kidding that, that's a joke, that's a joke. <laughs> nick nick i know you want to defend old vinegar joe Stillwell here so we'll go no i i think Kristen's point is really well made and the metaphor i always like to make is it's like the king of france you know calling his army together and you're not sure if your cousin the duke of burgundy is going to show up or not um because he might want to he might want the english to kill his cousin so he can become the king of france but um uh, it might not be quite that bad for Chiang Kai-shek, but he certainly faced those problems. Um, and I, I really like the point that Kristen's made, and I just want to double down on that. Uh, I spent eight years editing uh, Stillwell's diary. He's called Vinegar Joe uh, for a reason. That comes through amazingly clear in his diary. There's a lot of just petty nastiness towards uh, Chiang Kai-shek. Uh, and some of it's, okay, it's his diary. He's just venting there, but... Um, uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I think a lot of it is just the way he behaved. And there's a gentleman by the name of Richard Frank who's writing a three-volume uh, history of the Pacific War, and he starts in 37. He's very complimentary of Chiang Kai-shek, and he is very uh, dismissive of uh, Stilwell. And one of the reasons is uh, Chiang Kai-shek said, I need an American general to do a X, Y, and Z, and they sent Stilwell because Stilwell read, read and spoke Chinese, but Stillwell was not inclined to do X, Y, and Z. He wanted to do uh, one, two, and three, you know, so uh, there was a big disconnect right there. And, um, uh, but 
the point about the Chinese is absolutely correct. Uh, the Chinese are playing the role of the Soviet Union, or playing the role that the Soviet Union is playing in the, in the European theater. They're absorbing vast bulks, the vast bulk of the Imperial Japanese Army, depending on how you want to count it, two thirds to 80%. And, you know, if that force is in the Pacific, the United States has a very difficult time, you know, winning this conflict. I'm not saying impossible, but it's a lot more difficult. So, and um, that's it's probably a good segue too, to talk about, um, you know, Mao's because of because of what's going on uh, in not just civil war but um, a death match death match if you will with, with Japan um, he develops this theory uh, his three phase insurgency approach but isn't this also the beginnings of the because he has to go a different direction in terms of communism it has to be an agrarian form of communism you know what's it called the Yenon way versus you know pure Marxism and the, and the urban proletariat. Isn't this, couldn't you say, almost the beginnings of the Sino-Soviet split because they, you know, their interpretations of communism kind of start to do this because of what Mao has to develop? Index, why don't we start this one with you? Um, well, yeah, you, could, you can certainly see some of the, some of the origins there. Um, there was room in, um, there was room in Marxism-Leninism, in particular in Leninism, uh, for revolutions like the one that Mao is trying to generate, uh, to play, to be in accord with more orthodox uh, Marxism-Leninism. I mean, these these ideas of liberation in the in the developing world, wars of national liberation, um, that are that are uh, involve coalitions of you know bourgeois liberal political parties, but also communist parties, um, you know, a, a range of these kind of united fronts. Um, so. Um, and you know certainly the, the the Soviet Union is not the most industrially advanced country in the world, um, and certainly there is a a rural dimension to it. But yeah, it is much more orthodox. Uh, Mao partly out of necessity, um, you know, and partly because the industrial proletariat in China is so small uh, and is actually doing quite well. Uh, they're not a particularly, uh, you know. Um, you know, in relative terms, they're not a particularly revolutionary force, whereas he sees the the, the peasantry as far more revolutionary um, because of the the huge injustices that he identifies uh, in the agricultural sector. I think he he dramatically overplays this because he uh, excess the, the excessive uh, use of class warfare to try to understand local society misses uh, a lot of the uh, the nuance of, of village life, of rural life in China, wherein the, the local elites are, uh, especially in places, you know, we call them single surname villages, the, wherein, you know, the entire village is, um, is related. Oh. And wherein the wealthiest people, the landlords and the like, uh, are not always seen as class enemies. Uh, they are quite often the benefactors of local society. There's the sort of kind of Chinese version of the gospel of wealth that these these wealthy local families have feel that they have a moral obligation uh, to see to the well-being of their neighbors. They're the ones that, you know, uh, re repair the irrigation works. They're the ones who, you know, stockpile grain uh, for times uh, times of famine. Uh, they're the ones who host the, you know, 
the New Year's party and, and pay for the pig roast and the, and the fireworks display. I'm not, you know, trying to say it's, 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 uh, it's a paradise, but there are forces that integrate Chinese society um, uh, that work at cross purposes to Mao's sort of concept of, of, of class struggle uh, mm. and class animosity. Mm. So a little bit off, off the beaten path there, but still Mao develops this, uh, this alternate form of communism focusing on peasant revolution. Uh, it is a variation on much more orthodox Soviet uh, ideas of class struggle and the motive force of revolution. But it's really only after the death of Stalin that you see uh, Mao, um, who initially says that my brand of communism uh, is Chinese communism, that and my strategy is a strategy for a communist revolution in China, because it is highly specific to the conditions uh, the geogra geography, the economic system, the cultural system, all these things, as well as to Chinese history. Um, it is only after the death of Stalin and, um, you know, the rise of Khrushchev and a whole range of other uh, tensions between China and the Soviet Union, wherein you see Mao trying to assert himself uh, as uh, sort of the leader of the international communist movement by selling the fact that his brand of communism is far more relevant to the needs of the international movement because it's it, it hasn't caught on much in the the industrial world. It is in fact in the developing world that the motive force of world revolution is going to catch hold. Uh, so this this increasingly puts him at odds with the Soviet Union. So, but you definitely see inklings of it there. Mm. Um, and Stalin himself is is skeptical of Mao as a, as a theorist and, a, and, and even as a practitioner. Um, but he's a, he's a useful ally uh, to mm. Stalin's throughout, at least, at least until Stalin's, at least until Stalin's death. So the useful ally of the Soviet Union, at least until Stalin's death. Definitely. But he's also not especially great to Mao, right? I mean, Mao no, leaves no, China no. for the first time to go to Moscow and Stalin keeps him waiting for like a week. You know? <laughs> and so there were problems in that relationship from the beginning. Uh, and, and you know, there, there's some very, you know, we don't tend to think of Stalin as a pragmatist, <laughs> right? But there was a whole lot of pragmatism in Stalin that doesn't get as much attention. And he has... The Soviet Union, because the Russian Empire did, the Soviet Union had a presence in China and agreements with the Chinese government. And it's not at all clear that the communists are going to come out victorious in this civil war. And so he's got a lot to defend on the ground. He cannot be all in with Mao and the rising Communist Party. He has to maintain those connections with the nationalist government under Chiang Kai-shek. And so he's biding his time. And so you'd think the civil war is over, Mao goes to, or certainly Mao would think that the civil war is over. He goes to Moscow victorious and he's treated poorly yeah. in a very insulting manner. So the, the Dex is right. The Sino-Soviet split really doesn't happen until um, after Stalin's death and, and really Khrushchev's spe secret speech, especially that really drives it in a whole new direction. But, but there are problems in this relationship from the beginning. I will also point out, I realize this is the senior course, not the intermediate course, but the lecture that Professor Stone gives in the intermediate course on Vietnam mm -hmm. and the various forms of communism, right? It's not the same 
anywhere, right? It's Marxism is Marxism. Marxism-Leninism looks different. Marxism-Leninism, Mao Zedong thought looks different, you know, and what it the form it takes in Vietnam is different. Obviously, obviously there are commonalities there, but it, it is not, this one is the one and all these others are deviationists until after the um, secret speech. And that's when, because, you know, right deviationist is a, is a very dirty term in, in the communist lexicon. And essentially that's what Mao is accusing Khrushchev of being. It's as bad as calling somebody a revisionist historian, right? <laughs> far worse than that. <laughs> Nick, and it will go to you next. Yeah, the um, Sino-Soviet split is, or at least I'm going to argue, will argue, uh, is a product, a byproduct of the Korean War. And that makes, there's a, a lot of frustration with the Korean War during the war and then most definitely after the war um, in the 50s and early 60s. And the Sino-Soviet split is a direct outcome of that. Uh, the Soviets supply the Chinese with a lot of material assistance, but uh, Stalin is not giving this through Lend-Lease or some kind of form of that. He's, a, in this sense, a good capitalist who can pay cash on the barrelhead. Then Chinese have problems doing that, and that leads to a lot of resentment, and that's one of the major elements for the split between the uh, Chinese and the Soviets. So, in that sense, it takes a little bit of time, but uh, the Korean War mortally wounds the alliance between the Soviets and the Chinese. And in that sense, the uh, Korean War uh, serves a very good or a very important strategic mission in the larger Cold War. And Sun Tzu tells us, you know, uh, sp split your enemy's alliance. Well, we managed to do that. Now, it will take time to fully realize that. And I suspect my understanding is that Washington uh, decision makers and intelligence analysts don't really, it takes time for them to accept that this is a real thing and recognize it and all that, but uh, it is a direct consequence of the Korean War. Mm. So, okay. I, yeah, I want to go to Korea, but, I, but, but before we do, I want to go back to this, this thread that um, Dex, both Dex and Kristen, uh, Kristen mentioned. Um, so Mao develops this theory, but as we've already kind of talked about, it is highly highly con contextualized in terms of uh, warlord period, civil war, uh, Japanese is a third party spo spoiler, Stalin is a fourth party spoiler, right? Because there's all these different things going on, but somehow Mao ends up on top. He, either these writings that become the Little Red Book or the Seeing Red reading as, as, as we know it here, now become the de facto playbook for every other insurgency around the globe. And, you know, as we just talked about, is this, is this just the plan for for China, but that doesn't really work anywhere else necessarily? And is it is it you know right, wrong, or indifferent that every other insurgency copies it? And what, Dex, what do, what do you think about that? Well, uh, I wouldn't say every other insurgency, but you know there are certainly you know clearly explicitly Maoist uh, insurgencies out there. There's still some going on right now. Uh, probably the most uh, famous in in uh, our hemisphere was Sendero Luminoso in Peru, the Shining Path. Uh, which was explicitly following a, a Maoist uh, script, um, but it's 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 very difficult to discern whether or not uh, this three-phase model, which has a certain elegance to it, um, and is clearly inspired in large part by by Clausewitz and his discussion of the relative strengths of offense and defense, and and what can and cannot be achieved on the defense. Um, and what can only be achieved on the offense. Uh, so this idea of the phase transitions is about um, 
you know, exploiting overextension of, of, of adversaries passing their culminating points uh, and of the fundamental balance uh, or the imbalance between the strength of the defense versus the offense. Um, and so it's got this, this elegant symmetry to it, but it's, it's hard to discern its explanatory power uh, in the Chinese Civil War. You know, for all intents and purposes, yes, they make these transitions uh, from, you know, trading space for time, ending up in Yan'an, uh, but then exploiting the overextension of the, the, the Japanese and their inability to fully occupy, to move into phase two, to build these, these Soviet base areas, to get that legitimacy, to systematically extract those resources before then transitioning, you know, building those things up and transitioning over into um, the counteroffensive. Now, Mao does not neglect the role that foreign intervention plays, both in the sense of Japan as a spoiler, breaking the nationalist government, but also opening these up their, their, their uh, imperfect occupation and brutal occupation, allowing communists to grow both uh, geographically, but also in terms of political legitimacy. Um, and then also it's the more positive role that foreign benefactors would play in terms of helping a light sort of uh, second, you know, phase two uh, communist military make the transition to large scale offensive operations. And obviously the Soviet Union uh, and also the captured stocks from uh, the Japanese and then the captured stocks from the nationalist government are part of that whole transition to this counteroffensive. But there are some yawning gaps in Mao's theory uh, about exactly how that's going to happen. Mm. Um, so there's a lot of, you know, so there's this elegant symmetry to this theory of unprotracted war, which evolves in the 1930s, which on the face of it looks like it tracks fairly closely with the progression of the Chinese Civil War, but it raises some questions about exactly the extent to which it follows the Maoist script and how much depends on chance, um, uh, how much depends on you know the, the the nature of foreign intervention. Can can you actually even make that transition? Right, Sendero Luminoso simply had no external benefactors. Uh, even even communist China in the 1970s really wanted nothing to do with an insurgent movement like that. So they didn't even have you know in a Maoist ostensibly a Maoist state a Maoist benefactor. So we've got that. So you have this, this, this script that then gets exported that many insurgent movements have followed to, to significant strategic success, uh, but the ability of it to, to translate into other theaters. Now, an interesting thing about that too is that uh, Mao's success in the Chinese Civil War um, and the appeal of the three-phase script also significantly impacted early post-war thinking about counterinsurgency. You know, for example, the, the, the French uh, theorist David Galula, who writes a book called Counterinsurgency Warfare, um, who had experience in Algeria, um, you know, essentially maps the Maoist model onto the Algerian insurgency and draws from that essentially a counterinsurgency strategy that's designed to be a direct counter to a Maoist strategy, mm. right? So if the adversary is in, is in phase two, which, sorry, phase three, the idea is to knock them back into phase two. If they're in phase two, the idea is to disrupt them and then knock them back into phase one, you know, prevent, you know, trying to 
prevent them then from making the transition back, right? So it's an, kind of an elegant, uh, uh, it's an elegant counter strategy to what looks like an elegant strategy. Um, and you see that even in uh, FM 3-24, mm -hmm. wherein uh, General Petraeus and the team that wrote that up leaned quite heavily on David Galula. Mm -hmm. um, so what you have there is Maoist theory, which is not clear that it's actually ever been applied in practice and that it works in practice, uh, mm -hmm. drives thinking about counterinsurgency and whether or not that uh, they're, they're both kind of illusions uh, about mm. the sort of straightforward nature of insurgency or counterinsurgency. So I think that's an interesting kind of takeaway uh, from the complexity of this case, about no, how, much that, yeah. that, how much Maoist thinking informs not just the way uh, insurgents operate, but how we think about right. how counterinsurgency works. Yeah, no, great points. Uh, Kristen, any, any thoughts on this one? Uh, I'm going to stay out of the S&P theory wheelhouse since I haven't taught the course or done much of that reading. Fair, fair, <laughs> enough. fair enough. Nick? Um, I, I just say this one thing. Um, I, um, I've taught at three different PME schools, Air War College, Army Command General Staff, and here at the Naval War College. And at each one, uh, they taught a case on uh, the French-Algerian War. And I remember reading uh, at the Air War College someone who said, because essentially one of the things that happens is the French army is looking for it, uh, its mission in the Cold War, and it decides it's going to be the counterinsurgency army. And that's one of the reasons Galula writes this and why he gets so much attention. And I remember reading something that said the big mistake that the French make in the Algerian War is they read Mao and think he's serious. So... Uh, and I think, you know, what Dex was getting at is, is important to keep in mind is uh, this sounds nice in theory, whether or not it actually explains what happens is is a big, big if. And, um, you know, this all sounds nice in theory, but, you know, um, let's talk about reality. And um, I would also point out that the French don't do so well in Algeria. So, um, you know, so and we develop uh, the, the manual and we don't do so well in Afghanistan. So um, there's, there's something to, can, you know, it's, a, it's important, but we need to also make sure that we're taking our rock salt. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a great point. So Mao, um, right, wrong, or indifferently, it, it, you know, that, that theory goes on to, to uh, inspire other uncertainties. But then Mao does turn China red with it through that and a whole bunch of other factors. And that causes this radical shift for the United States, right? We have this theory of containment that says, you know, George Kennan, hey, just fold, hold these five centers of power and the rest, the Soviet Union will eventually implode. You know, don't worry about them, just focus on us. But China going red changes that, it, it's this radical shock to the system. Uh, Truman then shifts the strategy to NSC 68. Says, okay, we got to engage. We got to we got to uh, support um, uh, you know anti-communism uh, around the globe to various capacities. And Korea, all of a sudden in 1950, becomes this flashpoint. Um, so you know, one lens to look at this through is is what the old adage is: don't get involved in somebody else's civil war. Right? Korea's mm -hmm. civil war. You know, yes, it's communist and democratic, but it's it's somebody's own country. Mm -hmm. But yet Korea draws in both the United States and then China. So why is Korea, why does Korea draw in 
the other powers? Is it is it more than just ideology, Kristen? I guess. Yeah. I, so we skipped a crucial step here. Okay. Which is at the end of the Chinese Civil War, as it's winding down, and the Nationalists flee to Taiwan. Truman makes a decision: we are not going to defend Taiwan. Mm-hmm. It is going to fall to the communists eventually. We've supported the nationalists and they've lost badly. There is no point in propping up Taiwan until communist forces cross the Yalu River, right? And then it all turns around. It all turns around at that point. So it's not that the US was happy about, uh, you know, China becoming communist, but the, uh, I hate to you know repeat a theme, but there was a pragmatism there. It is not, it does not make sense for us to prop up Taiwan artificially until this happens. And then it becomes, you know, much more of a part of the containment and the domino theory and all that kind of thing. And so that is a very important shift in, in the US attitude and position on it. That's number one. Mm. Number two, something that often gets missed when people think about the Korean War is Mao's view of Western imperialists, especially the United States now, intent, right? So yes, we had MacArthur who was talking about crossing the Yellow River into China and attacks there and all this kind of thing. But generally speaking, that's not what the United States wanted to do. Nobody wanted to do that. Everybody knew what kind of a big giant mess that would be, but Mao, and this is where the center of humiliation comes in, right? And why it's so important to the Chinese mindset, which has evolved since Mao, but at the time when he has just managed to get all traces of foreigners out, suddenly U.S. forces are in Korea. And this looks like, to him, from his perspective, it looks very clear, like the United States is going to try to come back in and reestablish an imperialist presence in China, which the United States does not want to do. But Mao is certain that the United States does want to do that. And so the question of why U.S. forces got involved in Korea, I think, is is pretty clear, right? This is a domino theory containment issue. And we've already, you know, we've already lost China was the way they talked about it at the time. We can't afford to lose more. Okay. But Mao's reasons for getting involved in Korea are not let's spread communism anywhere near as much as it's we will not come under imperialist pressure and domination ever again mm-hmm. and so you have two very very different mindsets there's a lot going on here right that's no no that, that's that, thank you that, that's, we talk about that in the junior course who are the winners of the korean war number yeah. one taiwan yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. nick we'll go to you next well that's that's very true and um you know ultimately kenan Kennan actually supports going into Korea because um, he's basically saying these five centers of power, we have to, one of those centers of power is Japan. It's the only one, well, North America and Japan are the only two outside of Europe. And um, most, during the Cold War, all but, um, all but European Russia are aligned with us or controlled by us or something like that. But uh, an attack on uh, South Korea and that's how they define it as an attack. And it's like, okay, wait a minute. These are Koreans, uh, you know, initiating combat against other Koreans. I'm not sure it's an attack, but anyway, they see this as one foreign, a foreign threat and all this sort of stuff. But in a geostrategic sense, this is a threat to Japan. Korea is a dagger aimed at the heart of Japan. So you want to protect what's valuable and you really best not to fight the fight in Japan because then you destroy uh, what makes Japan valuable with all the combat operations. So better to fight an away game uh, in Korea to protect Japan. 
So, and this has essentially been Japanese thinking for at least 400 years since uh, uh, Hideyoshi, the um, technically his title isn't Shogun, but let's just call him a Shogun. Uh, he invades Korea uh, in the 14, 1590s, and it's an effort to basically, you know, first step to invade China. So there is kind of an old playbook here. Uh, we're not really interested in doing that, but that's not the way it looks uh, to Stalin. He doesn't want, or excuse me, Mao, he doesn't want, uh, uh, you know, a hostile state on the other side of the Yalu, and we certainly would have a problem if there was a hostile state on the other side of the Rio Grande. So some of this is, um, you know, uh, geostrategic thinking on our part and on, on Mao's part, but this is really an effort to, in many ways, protect Japan. But I'd also say, and Kristen really gets at this in, with her previous comment, is there's a lot of um, uh, crisis thinking. Uh, the Truman administration holds a series of meetings for five days, and they're trying to figure out what they're doing. And if you look at this, some of the you know, look at the minutes, some of the rationale and ideas that are offered are not particularly good. Uh, these guys are operating oftentimes on less than eight hours of sleep. And these are guys in their fifties and sixties. So they really do need, uh, you know, eight hours of sleep and it's stressful, but we do see kind of a reversal and Truman makes a decision to send uh, military force to Korea, to send naval force to the Straits of Taiwan and to send military assistance to the French in Vietnam. And essentially this is an effort to contain China in the North in the center and in the south. So it does represent to some degree a reversal and uh, Truman's getting beat up um, domestically for losing China. So I suspect some of this isn't clearly stated in the minutes, but I suspect some of this is an effort to kind of respond to domestic critics. So mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, Dex, go ahead. Yeah, I, I would say there, I mean, there's there's also, yeah, Kristen absolutely nailed it, is, is this, you know, Walter Bettel Smith, who was an incredibly smart guy, um, you know, what the d director of the CIA, um, you know, at, at, at this particular point, he had been, I guess, Eisenhower's chief of staff. Uh, the, 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 the threat assessment brief from the CIA was that the Chinese would not intervene, uh, you know, overlaying on them a, a rational calculus that the revolution has just succeeded. Um, you know, this is a limited war. We're intervening to, to, to stop North Koreans, that the value of the object does not justify it. Uh, um, moreover, we have nuclear weapons and, you know, that might that might hold their hand, uh, stay their hand for, for intervention. All that is absolutely wrong. It's completely reasonable. Uh, it's well thought out, but it's absolutely wrong when it comes to threat perceptions. I mean, if, if the United States is going to, you know, is, is looks like it's staging, as Nick just said, for a, a three-pronged counteroffensive into China, you know, from Indochina across the Taiwan Straits and up the Korean Peninsula, you know, uh, which has only happened, as Nick pointed out, several times in the last 500 years, um, <laughs> that, uh, you know, um, that if the United States is staging for that, of course, they're going to use nuclear weapons uh, on the Chinese. So our so so the, the threat actually backfires in terms of uh, in, in terms of failing, uh, 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 deterring uh, deterring Mao. Um, domestic politics also plays a role here. I mean, Mao sees an intimate connection between foreign politics and, um, you know, foreign policy, foreign wars, uh, domestic policy, and domestic revolution. Uh, and to him, there is an opportunity in Korea uh, in an additional crisis to help him accelerate the domestic, um, you know, the 
house cleaning, as it were, uh, to go after the enemies without guns, uh, to return to the, the land reform, to the rural revolution that was stopped in the late stages of the, the Civil War. Um, in the same way, there's domestic politics uh, in the United States, right? Um, you know, there, there were these accusations, uh, you know, one, uh, Truman lost China, uh, Marshall uh, betrayed Chiang Kai-shek, um, that the, these lud ludicrous accusations leveled at the State Department, um, that, you know, it was communist agents within the State Department, within the China-watching community uh, that sabotaged, that had been sabotaging American-China policy and furthering uh, the communist agenda back into the back into the Roosevelt administration. Uh, these ludicrous accusations, um, all sort of tarring the Truman administration, General Marshall, um, you know, the State Department, uh, the people who actually understood China. Um, completely unfair accusations, but uh, you know, th this this was this was jarring for for Truman, um, and also a lot of stuff had changed. Uh, from from Kennan's more uh, you know initial pr prescriptions about a more elegant uh, you know count you know a counter strategy uh, for containment um, you know obviously the fall of China was part of it those you know the, and the threat that potentially posed the acu the domestic accusations about it the um, the pressure on the Truman administration the Berlin crisis, the uh, Soviet atomic bomb test, all these things are, are game changers, which drive uh, the US decision to intervene, which also then has that uh, knock-on effect with uh, the threat perceptions in Beijing, uh, causing them to intervene. Um, and I, I think it's kind of ironic that, um, you know, we quite often gloss our intervention in South Korea as you know, going into supported democracy against uh, dictatorship. Um, uh, South Korea in 1950 is, is far from democracy. Uh, you know, Syngman Rhee is, 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 a, is, a, is a socialist, if anything. Uh, most of the military is, is, is former Japanese, they're Koreans, but they're form, former Japanese officers uh, have been waging a brutal counterinsurgency. Uh, the regime is a basket case. The economy is a disaster. Uh, if anything, Chiang Kai-shek was a better uh, better bet. Uh, and China was a vastly more valuable piece of real estate in terms of American national interests uh, mm. than Korea. But all those changed circumstances and this, and this different set of threat assessments is, is driving American ch the choice to intervene. Mm. Um, and then that's creating this, this interaction. Um, and then, then there's you know a couple other things. It's just that the the U.S. in Korea um, simply does not have the intel advantage that uh, we had enjoyed uh, in either the European theater or in the Pacific theater in mm -hmm. World War II. Um, so even when the Chinese warn us through the Indians um, that they will intervene if we cross the 38th parallel, um, we have no way to kind of test that. Um, you know, and, and also a lot of the people who knew a lot about China have been silenced as a result of these truly unfair accusations mm. uh, made against the China watching community in the United States. So it's uh, it's uh, sort of uh, fear 
um, you know, it, it, it's it's a mix of things uh, infecting this uh, this very fraught political decision, compounded by um, Nick's Nick's point about lack of sleep, and also just what what do Americans know about Korea at this point, really? Um, you know, our decision to 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 divide. Um, the Korean Peninsula with the with the Soviet occupation forces at the 38th parallel was was a decision made in a in a matter of what 20 minutes or a half an hour, uh, based on a National Geographic map that Major Dean Rusk pulled off the shelf. Uh, so that that level of you know ig ignorance uh, of the region uh, and these kind of uh, rushed judgments, um, you know, ultimately it turns out okay and does put. Uh, huge pressure uh, on the communist alliance that uh, that exacerbates these internal tensions but it's by no means a, a, a brilliant decision making process uh, any stretch of the imagination sorry for going oh no thank you thank you uh, nick did you have a response to that uh, i just want to kind of jump on it i think dex hit on something that i i wanted to stress and i'll, I'll just quickly hit uh, one or two points is uh, the real issue here is the balance between being a generalist and having being a specialist. And we do make some really bad decisions because out of ignorance, because we're kind of just glossing over this. And, you know, the, the assessment that um, uh, uh, General Smith makes uh, as director of the CIA is kind of accurate, uh, at least in a rational calculus, but, you know, it fails to ignore, it fails to take into account history. Uh, and we have a lot of people who don't understand the region. Um, I remember reading a, a memoir from a foreign service officer, and uh, they're having um, he's helping negotiate the peace, the um, the final end of the Korean War, and he John Foster Dulles, who's Secretary of State under Eisenhower, comes in. And he's like, "Why are the Chinese being so difficult about what we call these cities?" And he has to simply sit down and explain. Well, you know, the city that we call now Beijing, it literally means in Korean, uh, you know, northern capital, and you want to call this, you know, something else. And that's delegitimizing the regime. There's no way they're going to fight on this. So we don't even understand, uh, you know, proper nouns. I mean, that's just one example. But you know, it's it's a it gets at something. You know, it's the the expertise. Uh, you know, in one sense, the United States has a great deal of expertise, particularly you know today, um, particularly in academic communities. We have lots of immigrant groups, and we have, you know, if there's an academic specialty, we probably have you know the majority of it. Uh, in the United States, you know, with a few exceptions, like most German, you know, I imagine most German historians are actually in Germany, but, you know, we still have some pretty good German historians, but it's a, it's the real issue is taking this expertise and making sure it gets there uh, at the right moment. And, you know, the decision, like I said before, the decision-making process that you see in June of 50 in response to the North Korean invasion of South Korea, um, and that, that was probably not the right words to use, but anyway, um, it's not the best. So um, we get there, but it's kind of like, you know, um, you know, better to be lucky than good. So. Kristen, you have a response to this. I just have a quick true story to share with respect to the generalist versus specialist, right? So the year was 2003, and this was late January or early February. And I was sitting in an office at the previous institution where I worked with having a conversation with somebody who had his PhD in history, but was no longer a historian, right? He, he had become much more of a history buff. But high level person in the university said in my presence, 
this war that's coming with Iraq, it's going to be great. We're going to go in there and we're going to create democracy just like we did in Japan after World War II. And I'm going, oh, Gosh, you know, like <laughs> let's and, and at that point, I was a low ranking person in the room. I was working on my PhD, but I didn't have it yet. And everybody else did. But now now you're in my area of specialization. Right? I said, well, you know, there was that whole Meiji restoration in Japan. <laughs> and and he said, ah, oh, no, you know, I mean, he thought about it for a second. No, no, no. And I went, OK, right. And so that a couple of years later, well, I, probably 2006, maybe 2000, I guess it would have been 2007. I was teaching an undergraduate class on the history of imperialism. And I very carefully late in the semester said, this is why I was against the Iraq war. Given the history of imperialism there, there is no way that U.S. forces can go in and do anything other than take out Saddam Hussein and leave, which you can't do, right? There's nothing to avoid being seen as an, a yet another imperialist presence and in invasion. And now that we've spent a semester studying imperialism, that you can see why I was against that war. I tried to phrase it very carefully, very apolitically, because, you know, the U.S. view of the war in 2007 was very, very different than it is now. But these undergrads were so upset with me for articulating that view. You know, this is this is in Kansas, right? And so that there's a there's an army base ten minutes down the road, right? And they were very upset with me. I don't think they are anymore, but yeah. they even remember. But you know, it it the, and the State Department then had that information too, and they weren't being listened to. Like, here's what's going to happen. It's not going to be greeted with flowers, right? And they were not listened to in that context. Yeah, in my in my dissertation, I found uh, slash first book, I found that the expertise on Japan. Uh, was pretty solid, pretty good, particularly in the post-war era, but it kind of stopped. And I found it like basically being at the assistant secretary level. Um, and at that point, you know, it was like the people, the secretaries and the undersecretaries and whoever's in the White House, they were making decisions that really in many times ignored the expertise. Now, I also found that foreign service officer I talked about ends up becoming ambassador to Japan. And he for a variety of reasons, had a pretty good relationship with LBJ, and he's invited to a National Security Council meeting, and you can even see it in the photographs. Everyone's paying attention to him when he's talking about East Asia, and they're like, this guy knows his stuff. So it's all, I mean, it's an issue. Where do you hit that balance? And it's sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. So that's a good shift for our, since we're talking about more contemporary relevance to these, to these questions, for our last question here. Um, so we talked about Chinese Civil War, we talked about Korea, specifically Taiwan, which is still an issue to this day. What does this mean for contemporary China going forward? And also, why why now? Why all of a sudden is, is Taiwan having this resurgence as a problem for, for China? Is it just because of Xi Jinping or is there, there other structural going on. Uh, I just want to say, Dex and I could probably say the same thing at the same time in response to this question. But Dex, you go first. <laughs> oh, I want to hear what you're going to say, because it's going to be much smarter well, than what well, <laughs> I'll take credit for it. <laughs> I've seen you give a lecture on this subject, and I've given lectures on this subject. And we, if people are looking for debate here, I don't really think you're going to get it, because <laughs> I think we're in agreement on here. We, you know, we, I alluded to the century of humiliation. I know Dex lectures frequently on the century of humiliation. Um, in my elective in the fall, student, there was a student, and then again, when I gave a lecture on it at the Air War College, student was like, isn't it time for the Chinese to be done 
playing this grievance game. Like, are we falling for it? I said, this isn't, this isn't about trying to convince us of anything. Like this century of humiliation discussion is directed at a domestic audience more than anything else. And so what has happened it, through the reform period of China, which is, I don't know, let's say it's on pause and going slightly in reverse, at least, at least slightly mm -hmm. in reverse, um, is that, that it's not a Marxist government anymore, right? It's not really communist in nature. It's absolutely authoritarian and they use communist theory and slogans to, for their convenience, right? But their legitimacy is not rooted in communist ideology anymore. It is rooted in the nationalism that they've been that they have built up and stoked and encouraged and it blows up sometimes and then they have to tamp it down a bit but it's that is what the legitimacy comes from and for decades the communist leadership has said repeatedly when china is not unified there is chaos and even back in 1999 when i was in shanghai doing dissertation research a friend of mine an american friend was teaching english language courses at a high level at fudan university and the students wanted to talk about more interesting things than what was ever in their textbooks right and it was a very open time in china you could discuss anything and so the students wanted to discuss taiwan these are college students and they wanted to discuss taiwan and so she threw the question out to them what if Taiwan becomes officially independent. No, I mean, it was an uproar. No, that can't happen. No, well, why not? They are functionally independent as it is. And then they, the students started saying, because when China is not unified, there is chaos. It will be just like in the warring states period, which is before the time of Christ. <laughs> so 1999, Hong Kong had reverted to Chinese control in 97. Macau reverted to Chinese control in 99. And these students are screaming and yelling that Taiwan cannot become officially independent because it will be chaos, right? And that's only gotten worse since that time. Because in 1999, you could access CNN, you could access BBC, you could access New York Times, right? You cannot anymore without significant effort. And so the, the regime in Beijing, the leadership in Beijing has a whole lot of credibility and legitimacy wrapped up in Taiwan must be brought under. I mean, they would say back under our control, <laughs> right? The communists have never controlled Taiwan, right? The, the Chinese have, but the communists never have. But um, that's, that is a really big part of it. And the regime has staked its reputation on it. Add to that the military, you know, rise of, of China. And it, it's, it's, it is a powder keg right now. There's been some great analysis lately that the Chinese leadership doesn't actually want to go to war. And there was this war game or series of war games very, very recently, right? Was it at CSIS? And they've published, it's like a 28 iterations of a game and nobody wins, right? The Chinese military is devastated. The United States military is devastated. The Japanese military is devastated. There are no winners here except Taiwan, sort of, except they're devastated too, but they are not under PRC control. And so it is, it is this, this, this emotion, right, that has been built up around the issue for the last several decades that is, I think, more of a driver mm. than anything else. Interesting. Yeah, go ahead, Dex, please. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, that's exactly what I want to say. Uh, <laughs> what you said was brilliant. Anyway, um, I would also say that 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 part 
you know, again, these, as you just pointed out, I mean, these are the most, these are the best educated, most liberal, most cosmopolitan, you know, students. Pudan University is like, you know, the, the, the likelihood that they've been overseas or, or, you know, they, you know, they watch American television, they love basketball, what, you know, all these things, these, you know, they're, they're the sort of kids just kind of naturally inclined to, uh, but even, even there, it's, this is not just, you know, grumpy old party apparatchiks who, who are making these arguments. This is, this is a, this is a, a cross-section of uh, Chinese society. Um, uh, moreover, I think another implication of the century of humiliation um, is a tendency to overemphasize the harm done by foreign interference in China, uh, which creates a certain tone deafness to uh, China's own responsibilities for its national tragedies, for the government's responsibilities, for, for, for um, you know, for the huge mistakes. Of course, the party has to be infallible. Uh, that's, that's part of the, the, the shtick there as well. Um, but this also tends, tends to lead folks, even really smart folks in the national security uh, elite in China, to, to, to default to offshoring, offshoring blame. Mm -hmm. uh, for when circumstances start to turn against China. Um, this is also something that, that, that Putin's guilty of, right? Uh, anytime, um, you know, one of, China, uh, one of Russia's neighbors, um, the people rise up against, uh, you know, a pro-Russian authoritarian government, um, you know, uh, they're, they're doing it for very good reasons and spontaneously, these color revolutions we talk about. Uh, and yet in in Moscow and in Beijing, this these are this is the CIA, uh, this is the the State Department. This this is this is uh, this is peaceful evolution, right? Going back to the 1950s, that this is this plot uh, to use uh, peaceful evolution and information warfare and gray zone operations to to um, to overthrow these regimes or to change the rules of the game to to to, to split territories off uh, to, to sponsor separatism. So when the protests are going on in Hong Kong, uh, you know, Chinese policy elites are saying, well, those aren't spontaneous, you know, because there's British diplomats there and there's, you know, folks from the American consulate, right, at these protests. So they're, they're the ones driving the boat that uh, separatism on Taiwan is not a spontaneous political movement. Uh, it is the machinations of the Japanese in the United States pursuing our national interests. So it's a fundamental misunderstanding of what's going on there. Moreover, I think Beijing has completely tone deaf, um, you know, because they see the rules that, that we're changing the rules when it comes to Taiwan. Uh, and this aggravates them um, uh, and frightens them. Um, and in some ways, we have changed the rhetoric uh, of it. We have certainly taken certain steps. Um, but the U.S. is not responsible for the fact that the majority, I don't know what's up, 60, 70 percent of folks on Taiwan don't think of themselves as Chinese anymore. Uh, they're, they might be culturally Chinese, but Taiwan is a distinct identity. They, they, they should have their own path. The people in South Korea largely feel this way, you know, this idea of, of re, re, reuniting with the North is not attractive by any stretch of the imagination. This is generational change, but in Taiwan, it's also been 
pushed by a completely ham-handed set of influence operations uh, that Beijing has tried to run there, uh, which have completely backfired uh, on them. Um, so Beijing is as much to blame for this desire not to want to have anything to do with the mainland, you know, other than trade and being able to connect to ancestral uh, places, but really just no interest in this one country, two systems thing, especially, especially when they look at Hong Kong, this supposed test case of this, this great compromise. Uh, and even there, the grotesque overreaction, the complete unnecessary responses uh, that Beijing has taken there to what is not really a threat at all to their control of Hong Kong. Um, but the, the way they gloss it is this, these foreign machinations and, and the idea that the Chinese people can't possibly think of themselves as non-Chinese unless some foreign actor has convinced them of it. Um, so that I think is also um, adding to the, the, the fear and anxiety on, on China's part. So that's something to watch out for. Um, mm. it's, it's not, it's, it's, uh, it's not our fault, but they, they certainly think it is. <laughs> yeah. No, that's fascinating. Uh, Nick, final thoughts. Yeah, just, uh, I, I really found these comments useful. And as I pointed out earlier, I'm not, I know a little bit about China, but I'm by no means a, an expert on the area. So I appreciate this. I just want to make one or or two quick observations. Um, you know, with the century of humiliation, Americans tend to think, oh, geez, can't you get over your history? But let me ask this question. How long did it take us to get over our civil war? Uh, and Remains to be seen. Yes. <laughs> well, but, okay. Um, I think it's at least a century. So, uh, and probably more than that. But anyway, um, uh, I'm not really given an answer to that question. But um, the other thing I wanted to point out is, um, or, or two, one other, two other things. Dex made a really good point there about identity and all this sort of stuff. And, you know, there are, you know, Germany and Austria are two German speaking countries that are next to each other, but, you know, don't, they're, they're going in different directions or they have different paths. Canada and the United States are two English speaking countries that are next to each other, but they're, they're different. So um, that's something to consider uh, when we're dealing with this area. Um, and then the, the final thing is, is, you know, we're, we've talked, the original question is why has Taiwan become a big issue? And uh, Kristen Dex have given some pretty good answers. I just point out that we still have this unresolved problem in Korea. And, you know, if there's no reason, everyone has a reason not to want to go to war. You know, there are more incentives to, you know, there are very big penalties for initiating a shooting war. But I can see a scenario where we get one through more accident. And, you know, because uh, the Koreans are doing these stunts of firing missiles and, you know, you know, I can see uh, something going wrong and it actually landing somewhere and blowing something up that, you know, we care about. So and then that becomes an issue of what is the primary theater and what is the secondary theater. And if you're looking at, you know, it depends on what criteria you're using, but if it's, you know, population or if it's the size of the economy, uh, Korea looks like a much more valuable piece of real estate than Taiwan. And um, I'm not saying that's going to be the case. That's going to be the primary theater or the secondary theater. But it does show that there's going to be some very complicated complicated calculus uh, if um, in the future if things go less than, than good. Mm. Wow. All right. Well, that was a fascinating conversation. 
Uh, thank you very much, everyone, for your time. I learned a lot. I hope everybody out there listening did as well. And we will see everybody next time on Profiles and Strategy. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks John.